Section 4 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in November 2010. The Descent of Man, Part 2, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 8 Principles of Sexual Selection, Part 4. On the relation between the period of development of a character and its transmission to one sex or to both sexes. Why certain characters should be inherited by both sexes and other characters by one sex alone, namely by that sex in which the character first appeared, is in most cases quite unknown. We cannot even conjecture why with certain sub-breeds of the pigeon, black striae, though transmitted through the female, should be developed in the male alone, whilst every other character is equally transferred to both sexes. Why, again, with cats, the tortoise-shell colour should, with rare exceptions, be developed in the female alone. The very same character, such as deficient or supernumerary digits, colour-blindness, etc., may with mankind be inherited by the males alone of one family, and in another family by the females alone, though in both cases transmitted through the opposite as well as through the same sex. Although we are thus ignorant, the two following rules seem often to hold good, that variations which first appear in either sex at a late period of life tend to be developed in the same sex alone, whilst variations which first appear early in life in either sex tend to be developed in both sexes. I am, however, far from supposing that this is the sole determining cause. As I have not elsewhere discussed this subject, and it has an important bearing on sexual selection, I must here enter into lengthy and somewhat intricate details. It is in itself probable that any character appearing at an early age would tend to be inherited equally by both sexes, for the sexes do not differ much in constitution before the power of reproduction is gained. On the other hand, after this power has been gained and the sexes has come to differ in constitution, the gemules, if I may again use the language of pangenesis, which are cast off from each varying part in the one sex, would be much more likely to possess the proper affinities for uniting with the tissues of the same sex, and thus becoming developed, than with those of the opposite sex. I was first led to infer that a relation of this kind exists from the fact that whenever and in whatever manner the adult male differs from the adult female, he differs in the same manner from the young of both sexes. The generality of this fact is quite remarkable. It holds good with almost all mammals, birds, amphibians, and fishes, also with many crustaceans, spiders, and some few insects, such as certain orthoptera and libellulae. In all these cases, the variations, through the accumulation of which the male acquired his proper masculine characters, must have occurred at a somewhat late period of life, 
otherwise the young males would have been similarly characterized and conformable with our rule the variations are transmitted to and developed in the adult males alone when on the other hand the adult male closely resembles the young of both sexes these with rare exceptions being alike he generally resembles the adult female and in most of these cases the variations through which the young and old acquired their present characters probably occurred according to our rule during youth but there is here room for doubt for characters are sometimes transferred to the offspring at an earlier age than that at which they first appeared in the parents so that the parents may have varied when adult and have transferred their characters to their offspring whilst young there are moreover many animals in which the two sexes closely resemble each other and yet both differ from their young and here the characters of the adults must have been acquired late in life nevertheless these characters in apparent contradiction to our rule are transferred to both sexes we must not however overlook the possibility or even probability of successive variations of the same nature occurring under exposure to similar conditions simultaneously in both sexes at the rather late period of life and in this case the variations would be transferred to the offspring of both sexes at a corresponding late age and there would then be no real contradiction to the rule that variations occurring late in life are transferred exclusively to the sex in which they first appeared this later rule seems to hold true more generally than the second one namely that variations which occur in either sex early in life tend to be transferred to both sexes as it was obviously impossible even to estimate in how large a number of cases throughout the animal kingdom these two propositions held good it occurred to me to investigate some striking or crucial instances and to rely on the result an excellent case for investigation is afforded by the deer family in all the species but one the horns are developed only in the males though certainly transmitted through the females and capable of abnormal development in them in the reindeer on the other hand the female is provided with horns so that in this species the horns ought according to our rule to appear early in life long before the two sexes are mature and have come to differ much in constitution in all the other species the horns ought to appear later in life which would lead to their development in that sex alone in which they first appear in the progenitor of the whole family now in seven species belonging to distinct sections of the family and inhabiting different regions in which the stags alone bear horns i find that the horns first appear at periods varying from nine months after birth in the roebuck to ten twelve or even more months in the stags of the six other and larger species footnote i am much obliged to mr couples for having made inquiries for me in regard to the roebuck and red deer of scotland from mr robertson the experienced head forester to the marquis of bredalbane 
in regard to fallow deer i have to thank mr ayton and others for information End footnote. but with the reindeer the case is widely different for as i hear from professor nielsen who kindly made special inquiries for me in lapland the horns appear in the young animals within four or five weeks after birth and at the same time in both sexes so that here we have a structure developed at a most unusually early age in one species of the family and likewise common to both sexes in this one species alone in several kinds of antelopes only the males are provided with horns whilst in the greater number both sexes bear horns with respect to the period of development mr blyth informs me that there was at one time in the zoological gardens a young kudu antilope strepsiceros of which the males alone are horned and also the young of a closely allied species the eland antilope oreas in which both sexes are horned now it is in strict conformity with our rule that in the young male kudu although ten months old the horns were remarkably small considering the size ultimately attained by them whilst in the young male eland although only three months old the horns were already very much larger than in the kudu it is also a noticeable fact that in the prong-horned antelope only a few of the females about one in five have horns and these are in a rudimentary state though sometimes above four inches long footnote antilocapra americana i have to thank dr canfield for information with respect to the horns of the female End footnote. so that as far as concerns the possession of horns by the males alone this species is an intermediate condition and the horns do not appear until about five or six months after birth therefore in comparison with what little we know of the development of the horns in other antelopes and from what we do know with respect to the horns of deer cattle etc those of the prong-horned antelope appear at an intermediate period of life that is not very early as in cattle and sheep nor very late as in the larger deer and antelopes the horns of sheep goats and cattle which are well developed in both sexes though not quite equal in size can be felt or even seen at birth or soon afterwards footnote i have been assured that the horns of the sheep in north wales can always be felt and are sometimes even an inch in length at birth Ewart says that the prominence of the frontal bone in cattle penetrates the cutis at birth and that the horny matter is soon formed over it End footnote. our rule however seems to fail in some breeds of sheep for instance merinos in which the rams alone are horned for i cannot find on inquiry that the horns are developed later in life in this breed than in ordinary sheep in which both sexes are horned footnote i am greatly indebted to professor victor Keres for having made inquiries for me from the highest authorities with respect to the merino sheep of saxony on the guinea coast of africa there is however 
a breed of sheep in which as with merinos the rams alone bear horns and mr winwood reed informs me that in one case observed by him a young ram born on february tenth first showed horns on march sixth so that in this instance in conformity with rule the development of the horns occurred at a later period of life than in welsh sheep in which both sexes are horned End footnote. but with domesticated sheep the presence or absence of horns is not a firmly fixed character for a certain proportion of the merino ewes bear small horns and some of the rams are hornless and in most breeds hornless ewes are occasionally produced dr w marshall has lately made a special study of the protuberances so common on the heads of birds and he comes to the following conclusion that with those species in which they are confined to the males they are developed late in life whereas with those species in which they are common to the two sexes they are developed at a very early period this is certainly a striking confirmation of my two laws of inheritance in most of the species of the splendid family of the pheasant the males differ conspicuously from the females and they acquire their ornaments at a rather late period of life the eared pheasant crossoptilon auritum however offers a remarkable exception for both sexes possess the fine caudal plumes the large ear tufts and the crimson velvet about the head i find that all these characters appear very early in life in accordance with rule the adult male can however be distinguished from the adult female by the presence of spurs and conformly with our rule these do not begin to be developed before the age of six months as i am assured by mr bartlett and even at this age the two sexes can hardly be distinguished footnote in the common peacock pavo cristatus the male alone possesses spurs whilst both sexes of the java peacock pavo muticus offer the unusual case of being furnished with spurs hence i fully expected that in the latter species they would have been developed earlier in life than in the common peacock but mr hecht of amsterdam informs me that with young birds of the previous year of both species compared on april twenty third eighteen sixty nine there was no difference in the development of the spurs the spurs however were as yet represented merely by slight knobs or elevations i presume that i should have been informed if any difference in the rate of development had been observed subsequently End footnote. the male and female peacock differ conspicuously from each other in almost every part of their plumage except in the elegant head crest which is common to both sexes and this is developed very early in life long before the other ornaments which are confined to the male the wild duck offers an analogous case for the beautiful green speculum on the wings is common to both sexes though duller and somewhat smaller in the female and it is developed early in life whilst the curled tail feathers and other ornaments of the male are developed later footnote 
In some other species of the duck family, the speculum differs in a greater degree in the two sexes, but I have not been able to discover whether its full development occurs later in life in the males of such species than in the male of the common duck, as ought to be the case according to our rule. With the allied Mergus cuculatus we have, however, a case of this kind. The two sexes differ conspicuously in general plumage, and to a considerable degree in the speculum, which is pure white in the male and greyish white in the female. Now the young males at first entirely resemble the females, and have a greyish-white speculum, which becomes pure white at an earlier age than that at which the adult male acquires his other and more strongly marked sexual differences. See Audubon, Ornithological Biography, Volume 3, 1835, pages 249 to 250. End footnote. Between such extreme cases of close sexual resemblance and wide dissimilarity as those of the crossoptilon and peacock, many intermediate ones could be given, in which the characters follow our two rules in their order of development. As most insects emerge from the pupal state in a mature condition, it is doubtful whether the period of development can determine the transference of their characters to one or both sexes. But we do not know that the coloured scales, for instance, in two species of butterflies, in one of which the sexes differ in colour, whilst in the other they are alike, are developed at the same relative age in the cocoon. Nor do we know whether all the scales are simultaneously developed on the wings of the same species of butterfly, in which certain coloured marks are confined to one sex, whilst others are common to both sexes. A difference of this kind in the period of development is not so improbable as it may at first appear, for with the orthoptera, which assume their adult state, not by single metamorphosis, but by a succession of moults, the younger males of some species at first resemble the females, and acquire their distinctive masculine characters only at a later moult. Strictly analogous cases occur at the successive moults of certain male crustaceans. We have as yet considered the transference of characters relatively to their period of development only in species in a natural state. We will now turn to domesticated animals, and first touch on monstrosities and diseases. The presence of supernumerary digits and the absence of certain phalanges must be determined at an early embryonic period. The tendency to profuse bleeding is at least congenital, as is probably colour-blindness, Yet, these peculiarities and other similar ones are often limited in their transmission to one sex, so that the rule that characters developed at an early period tend to be transmitted to both sexes here wholly fails. But this rule, as before remarked, does not appear to be nearly so general as the converse one, namely that characters which appear late in life in one sex are transmitted exclusively to the same sex. From the fact of the above abnormal peculiarities becoming attached to one sex, long before the sexual functions are active, 
we may infer that there must be some difference between the sex at an extremely early age. With respect to sexually limited diseases, we know too little of the period at which they originate to draw any safe conclusion. Gout, however, seems to fall under our rule, for it is generally caused by intemperance during manhood, and is transmitted from the father to his sons in a much more marked manner than to his daughters. In the various domestic breeds of sheep, goats, and cattle, the males differ from their respective females in the shape or development of their horns, forehead, mane, dewlap, tail, and hump on the shoulders, and these peculiarities, in accordance with our rule, are not fully developed until a rather late period of life. The sexes of dog do not differ, except that in certain breeds, especially in the Scotch deerhound, the male is much larger and heavier than the female, and, as we shall see in a future chapter, the male goes on increasing in size to an unusually late period of life, which, according to rule, will account for his increased size being transmitted to his male offspring alone. On the other hand, the tortoise-shell color, which is confined to female cats, is quite distinct at birth, and this case violates the rule. There is a breed of pigeons in which the males alone are streaked with black, and the streaks can be detected even in the nestlings, but they become more conspicuous at each successive moult, so that this case partly opposes and partly supports the rule. With the English carrier and pouter pigeons, the full development of the wattle and the crop occurs rather late in life, and, conformably with the rule, these characters are transmitted in full perfection to the males alone. The following cases, perhaps, come within the class previously alluded to, in which both sexes have varied in the same manner at a rather late period of life, and have consequently transferred their new characters to both sexes at a corresponding late period, and if so, these cases are not opposed to our rule. There exist sub-breeds of the pigeon, described by Neumeister, in which both sexes change their color during two or three moults, as is likewise the case with the almond tumbler. Nevertheless, these changes, though occurring rather late in life, are common to both sexes. One variety of the canary bird, namely the London prize, offers a nearly analogous case. With the breeds of the fowl, the inheritance of various characters by one or both sexes seems generally determined by the period at which such characters are developed. Thus, in all the many breeds in which the adult male differs greatly in color from the female, as well as from the wild parent species, he differs also from the young male so that the newly acquired characters must have appeared at a rather late period of life. On the other hand, in most of the breeds in which the two sexes resemble each other, the young are coloured in nearly the same manner as their parents, and this renders it probable that their colours first appeared early in life. We have instances of this fact in all black and white breeds, in which the young and old of both sexes are alike. 
nor can it be maintained that there is something peculiar in a black or white plumage which leads to its transference to both sexes for the males alone of many natural species are either black or white the females being differently coloured with the so-called cuckoo subbreeds of the fowl in which the feathers are transversely pencilled with dark stripes both sexes and the chickens are coloured in nearly the same manner the laced plumage of the sebrite bantam is the same in both sexes and in the young chickens the wing feathers are distinctly though imperfectly laced spangled hamburgs however offer a partial exception for the two sexes though not quite alike resemble each other more closely than do the sexes of the aboriginal parent species yet they acquire their characteristic plumage late in life for the chickens are distinctly pencilled with respect to other characters besides colour in the wild parent species and in most of the domestic breeds the males alone possess a well-developed comb but in the young of the spanish fowl it is largely developed at a very early age and in accordance with this early development in the male it is of unusual size in the adult female in the game breeds pugnacity is developed at a wonderfully early age of which curious proofs could be given and this character is transmitted to both sexes so that the hens from their extreme pugnacity are now generally exhibited in separate pens with the polish breeds the bony protuberance of the skull which supports the crest is partially developed even before the chickens are hatched and the crest itself soon begins to grow though at first feebly and in this breed the adults of both sexes are characterized by a great bony protuberance and an immense crest finally from what we have now seen of the relation which exists in many natural species and domesticated races between the period of the development of their characters and the manner of their transmission for example the striking fact of the early growth of the horns in the reindeer in which both sexes bear horns in comparison which their much later growth in the other species in which the male alone bears horns we may conclude that one though not the sole cause of characters being exclusively inherited by one sex is their development at a late age and secondly that one though apparently a less efficient cause of characters being inherited by both sexes is their development at an early age whilst the sexes differ but little in constitution it appears however that some difference must exist between the sexes even during a very early embryonic period for characters developed at this age not rarely become attached to one sex summary and concluding remarks from the foregoing discussion on the various laws of inheritance we learn that the characters of the parents often or even generally tend to become developed in the offspring of the same sex at the same age and periodically at the same season of the year in which they first appeared in the parents but these rules owing to unknown causes are far from being fixed 
hence during the modification of a species the successive changes may readily be transmitted in different ways some to one sex and some to both some to the offspring at one age and some to the offspring at all ages not only are the laws of inheritance extremely complex but so are the causes which induce and govern variability the variations thus induced are preserved and accumulated by sexual selection which is in itself an extremely complex affair depending as it does on the ardor in love the courage and the rivalry of the males as well as on the powers of perception the taste and will of the female sexual selection will also be largely dominated by natural selection tending towards the general welfare of the species hence the manner in which the individuals of either or both sexes have been affected through sexual selection cannot fail to be complex in the highest degree when variations occur late in life in one sex and are transmitted to the same sex at the same age the other sex and the young are left unmodified when they occur late in life but are transmitted to both sexes at the same age the young alone are left unmodified variations however may occur at any period of life in one sex or in both and be transmitted to both sexes at all ages and then all the individuals of the species are similarly modified in the following chapters it will be seen that all these cases frequently occur in nature sexual selection can never act on any animal before the age for reproduction arrives from the great eagerness of the male it has generally acted on this sex and not on the females the males have thus become provided with weapons for fighting with their rivals with organs for discovering and securely holding the female and for exciting or charming her when the sexes differ in these respects it is also as we have seen an extremely general law that the adult male differs more or less from the young male and we may conclude from this fact that the successive variations by which the adult male became modified did not generally occur much before the age for reproduction whenever some or many of the variations occurred early in life the young males would partake more or less of the characters of the adult males and differences of this kind between the old and young males may be observed in many species of animals it is probable that young male animals have often tended to vary in a manner which would not only have been of no use to them at an early age but would have been actually injurious as by acquiring bright colors which would render them conspicuous to their enemies or by acquiring structures such as great horns which would expend much vital force in their development variations of this kind occurring in the young males would almost certainly be eliminated through natural selection with the adult and experienced males on the other hand the advantages derived from the acquisition of such characters would more than counterbalance some exposure to danger and some loss of vital force 
as variations which give to the male a better chance of conquering other males or of finding securing or charming the opposite sex would if they happened to arise in the female be of no service to her they would not be preserved in her through sexual selection we have also good evidence with domesticated animals that variations of all kinds are if not carefully selected soon lost through intercrossing and accidental deaths consequently in a state of nature if variations of the above kind chanced to arise in the female line and not be transmitted exclusively in this line they would be extremely liable to be lost if however the females varied and transmitted their newly acquired characters to their offspring of both sexes the characters which were advantageous to the males would be preserved by them through sexual selection and the two sexes would in consequence be modified in the same manner although such characters were of no use to the females but i shall hereafter have to recur to these more intricate contingencies lastly the females may acquire and apparently have often acquired by transference characters from the male sex as variations occurring later in life and transmitted to one sex alone have incessantly been taken advantage of and accumulated through sexual selection in relation to the reproduction of the species therefore it appears at first sight an unaccountable fact that similar variations have not frequently been accumulated through natural selection in relation to the ordinary habits of life if this had occurred the two sexes would often have been differently modified for the sake for instance of capturing prey or of escaping from danger differences of this kind between the two sexes do occasionally occur especially in the lower classes but this implies that the two sexes follow different habits in their struggles for existence which is a rare circumstance with the higher animals the case however is widely different with the reproductive functions in which respect the sexes necessarily differ for variations in structure which are related to these functions have often proved of value to one sex and from having arisen at a late period of life have been transmitted to one sex alone and such variations thus preserved and transmitted have given rise to secondary sexual characters in the following chapters i shall treat of the secondary sexual characters in animals of all classes and shall endeavour in each case to apply the principles explained in the present chapter the lowest classes will detain us for a very short time but the higher animals especially birds must be treated at considerable length it should be borne in mind that for reasons already assigned i intend to give only a few illustrative instances of the innumerable structures by the aid of which the male finds the female or when found holds her on the other hand all structures and instincts by the aid of which the male conquers other males and by which he allures or excites the female will be fully discussed as these are in many ways the most interesting end of section four